Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for Luke's gospel and all it tells us about who Jesus is, this careful account that he's written um, so that we might know the certainty of things we have been taught. And we just pray, please, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, Father, by your Spirit, to teach us more of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Why do people reject Jesus? Well, let's make it more personal. Why might I reject Jesus? Maybe you think there's no way I could do that. Why do people reject Jesus? Why might I reject Jesus? If you've been with us throughout this series in Luke's Gospel, it's amazing what we have seen about the Lord Jesus so far. His power to do good, his power to heal, his power to forgive. So why would people end up rejecting Jesus? But that is what our passage talks about, that people do indeed end up rejecting Jesus, despite all that he has done. And maybe most surprising of all is is who it is that rejects Jesus, that it's the religious folk, that it's the churchy folk, that it's the Pharisees and the teach the law, all the people who in our day and age would have been in church every Sunday, pray twice on a Sunday. Why is it them that reject God? And we see that today. It's a sobering fact that in many countries, it's, if you like, the state religion or the state church who uh, are most hostile towards evangelical Bible-believing Christians. It is the Pharisees who reject Jesus. So my first kid's question is, do the Pharisees accept Jesus? Do the Pharisees accept Jesus? And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here, I guess that's a sobering question. Maybe you've never thought of it. Would I have killed Jesus if he had come to earth? If I'd been there, would I have been part of the crowd of people who killed Jesus? Well, let's recap where uh, we've got to. At the beginning of our Gospel, Luke tells us that he's carefully investigated everything from the beginning. He's spoken to the eyewitnesses, and now he's drawn up an ordered account so that we might know the certainty of the things that we have been taught about the Christian faith. Uh, I guess the birth stories of Jesus are famous. It begins with this humble birth announced with great joy by the angels to the shepherds. You know, to you in David's town, a Saviour is born. He is Christ the Lord. It's very exciting and joyful. We saw Jesus baptised. We saw him defeat the devil and resist the temptations of the devil. There was that amazing sermon he preached in Nazareth about how he's come to preach good news to the poor, uh, release and freedom, how he'd come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And the last few weeks, we've seen how he began to live that out. He releases people from demonic oppression. He heals all their diseases. He wants us to know, most wonderfully of all, that he can forgive sins. If you hear when Philippe was preaching last week, we looked at how when the man was put through the roof, the the, uh, paralytic was put through the roof, how Jesus um, forgave him. And then he wanted us to know the certainty, you know, that you may know for certain that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He healed the man. He then went to Levi's house and... um, Here was a man, definitely a sinner, and he accepted him and brought him forgiveness. What could be better news than that? 
in our sin-sick world, in our world that is full of hostility and, uh, an, uh, you know, and anarchy and just such a mess in human relations, what could be better news than to have the Lord Jesus deal with our sins? You know, here we are, we say, shove off God, you know, I'm in charge, no to your rules. We deserve God's terrible judgment. And Jesus comes, the Son, the Saviour, into the world to save people, to bring them forgiveness. But into that picture, a very dark shadow comes. I'm not going to... I have. I hope this is going to be a daffodil, but I didn't have a daffodil. I like this. lovely. This time of year. Just so I noticed that supermarkets are saying daffodils. And you, go in the, you can go and buy a bunch, and they just open up those beautiful yellow flowers. Sorry, this is in daffodil. The Maras are here. The Maras kindly gave us this last Sunday. Anyway, so it's just like this beautiful flower, like Jesus comes, and it's almost as if we just... The Pharisees just put him on the floor and just stamp on him. It's not very nice, but that is what—that is really the power of our passage today. Let's read chapter 6 and verse 11. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were happy with Jesus? No, they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So it's like a beautiful flower growing up, everyone really excited, and then somebody says, I'm going to get rid of that, I'm going to stamp on it and destroy it. And so our passion today consists of three, three uh, little sort of incidents that happened in the life of Jesus, and they reflect there's a growing hostility towards Jesus Christ and particularly these religious churchy leaders. So my first point is, sorry, the same as the titles, it's the rejection of Jesus. We're not going to look at the passages in detail, we're going to look at the parable, I think, explains the passage in detail. But let's just look at these three incidents just briefly. The first is this question about fasting. So if you were here last week, you remember that uh, Jesus had gone to this guy, <coughs> this guy Levi's house, he was a tax collector, he was wealthy, he got all his mates together, they were a pretty dodgy bunch, if uh, truth be known. And the... Uh, Pharisees were a bit confused by this. So in verse 30 they ask, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And in verse 33 they have another question. They say to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Now it's clear to the Pharisees that fasting was very, very important. Luke Sorry, a Jesus describes a parable and he puts some words in a Pharisee's mouth. So this is how Jesus understood the Pharisees. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Uh, the second kid's question. How often do the Pharisees fast? How often do the Pharisees fast? It's clear part of what the Pharisee thinks is going to make him acceptable to God. Hey God, look at me, I fast twice a week, you must be pleased with me, I think is the sort of logic of what he's saying. But here in this passage, Jesus clearly doesn't follow the same ritual, and so the Pharisees and others are not very impressed with him and their followers, that's the first account. Then the second account is about the disciples picking corn on the Sabbath. And this is in chapter 6. 
One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and his, and his disciples began to pick some of the ears of corn, rub them in their hands and eat the grain. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? That's the second account. And then the third, beginning in verse 6, on another Sabbath he went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus goes on to indeed heal on the Sabbath. So those two, the second two accounts are all about what can we do on the Sabbath? Well, here is the commandment on the Sabbath. It's very simple, really. Well, I've lost because we've gone on one too far. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, the Lord your God. On it you not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. Very simple. This is what you should do. You shouldn't work on the Sabbath. Then he gives the reason. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It's a very simple rule. It just says, don't work on the Sabbath. And then it gives the reason. But by the time of Jesus, the Jews had come up with 39 things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And clearly, one of them was this idea of picking corn and rubbing them together and eating them. To them, that was some sort of work. Or when Jesus proclaims just, what is it, uh, uh, in four words, he heals the man. Verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10. Stretch out your hand. But that's clear work. So those are the three incidents. And they leave the uh, Pharisees, again in verse 11. But the Pharisees and the teach the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Here are people who have seen the goodness of Jesus, but because he doesn't seem to keep their rituals, they end up uh, rejecting him. And sadly, we see that today, that also people reject Jesus, even religious types, pretty especially religious types, reject Jesus. Despite all his love, despite all his brilliance, despite his salvation, people reject him today. Uh, so Jane, my wife, uh, this is quite some time before I met her, uh, she used to work for a, uh, a boarding school in Seven Oaks, and one of her jobs was to take the girls, some of the girls, to uh, a church on Sunday. Sadly, the church didn't really preach the Bible, and was pretty unfriendly. Jane said, I don't know how long she did this for, a year maybe, a bit longer, nobody really ever spoke to her, and it was pretty dull and boring. And Jane was aware that there were some good lively Bible-teaching churches in uh, Seven Oaks that you could go to. And she was so wondering, why was it that um, they went to this rather dull church where the Bible wasn't taught when there was actually very good churches so that we could be lively and far more interesting for the girls? And uh, she did a bit of research and she found out what the answer was. Apparently, a few years before this, they had gone to one of these lively Bible-teaching uh, churches. And some of them had begun to uh, go to confirmation classes at this church. Uh, the curate at the time was a man called Dick Lucas, who became very famous in the city. He was a, he's a great gospel preaching man, he still is. Um, and wonderfully, some of the girls were actually converted in these, uh, these um, confirmation classes. Uh, they became really excited about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he brought forgiveness and new life. 
And so uh, they went home to their parents, and they told them how excited they were about Jesus and how excited you know, they were about this new forgiveness that Jesus brought. And some of the parents weren't very happy with this, and they began to complain about what had happened to their daughters, about how they suddenly become enthusiastic about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and all the good things that he brought. And so sadly, the school decided to stop allowing the girls to go to that church. So it seemed that the parents were very happy for a bit of church going, a bit of religious ritual, maybe a bit of Lord's Supper. But nothing about an enthusiastic relationship with Jesus and the forgiveness that he brought. Well, that seems to be a bit like what the Pharisees are. We like a bit of rules, a little bit of ritual, but we're not going to get excited about Jesus and this forgiveness that he brings. Uh, We're on the third kid's question. How did the Pharisees react when Jesus healed the man? How did the Pharisees react when Jesus healed the man? Which I think leads us to the question, what is going on? What is going on? Here's the most amazing man who's ever lived. Jesus comes, he comes preaching good news, he heals people, he drives out demons, he forgives sins. It's wonderful. And yet he ends up being rejected, probably by the very people who one would think, well... um, who who should accept him, the sort of churchy goes. And I think that's the point of these three parables, these two parables that Jesus tells in verse 36. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at verses 36 to 39. He told them this parable. Actually, Catherine, I got my cloth back. I need my cloth back, didn't I? Because I'm going to... So he tells them the parable about no one tears a piece out of a new garment. So here's my new garment to patch an old one. That's the old one. Sorry, I had them the other way around, didn't I? I was going to get confused. Okay. Um, otherwise, they will have torn the new garments. If I start cutting up this nice bit of cloth, that's not very good, is it? It'll be a bit of a mess. And if I stick it on this shirt, it won't match it, will it? It doesn't match. They're not going to go together. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. So uh, if you poured new wine into old wineskins, they're going to be fragile and brittle, and they're going to break. And what is going to happen? The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Well, let's just work through this. Um, So this is about Jesus explaining his rejection. And the first point I always make is that there are two ways. There's an old way. I'm going to get this right. So we'll do the old way over here. There's old way over here, and there's the new way here. Now, the old way. Now, I think it's very tempting for us just to think, well, the old way is the Old Testament, okay, and the Jewish law, and the new way is Jesus. But we've got to be a little bit careful, because Jesus says a lot of very positive things about the Old Testament law. So I think it's better to see the Old Testament law as a sort of first century distortion of, uh, of the Old Testament law. So, for example, this issue of fasting. Uh, in the Old Testament, you were meant to fast one day in the year, the Day of Atonement, the day, this particular day when God forgave the sins of the people. So you fasted for one day. My mass thinks if you're th- fasting twice a week for 50 weeks of the year, you are fasting 100 times. So the Jewish rule was that you fast a hundred times more than God said you should, okay? So that's not really the Old Testament law. And then notice that when, on the second instant, when Jesus' disciples are going through, their, um, going through the fields picking the corn, 
How does Jesus respond to that in verses 3 to 5? Well, let's try 3 to 4. You guys, have a look. Tell me the answer. That's good, sorry. It's quite warm in here. I'm beginning to feel like people are going to sleep. So, um, yeah, verses 3 to 5. How does or three to four, how does Jesus answer their question? They're saying you shouldn't uh, work to get food on the Sabbath. How does Jesus answer their question? Verses three to three and four. He quotes the Bible back to them. Yeah, okay, what, what does he say exactly? He tells a story, doesn't he? So he tells a story of David. This is, in, if you want to read it, it's in 1 Samuel 21. Uh, David, he's on the run from Saul at this stage. Uh, he, he and his companions are hungry. They go into the house of God, take the consecrated bread, which only the priests are allowed to eat, apparently by the law. Uh, he gives some to his companions, and uh, that's fine. I think he's making the point that the law is not meant to sort of cause unnecessary human suffering. And so, you know, the disciples just picking some grains of food to eat. You know, you shouldn't sort of beat them up about working on the Sabbath. They're hungry and they just take some grains to eat. And then the same point, it roughly is made in, in verse 9. So Jesus is going to heal this man in, this, on, on, in verse 9. Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? So I say it, so the Old is not so much the Old Testament as a sort of first century Jewish distortion of it. We thought about what the Pharisees and their fasting were trying to do. It seems that they were basically trying to make themselves look good before God. They were trying to say, look God, I fast, I do all these good things, I give a tenth, I do all these good things. Look, I'm acceptable to you. And sadly, uh, we can know of many people who will do the same thing today. Yes, I go to church every week, or I, I take mass every week, or I, uh, Costas was telling me about how people, some people in the Greek Orthodox Church, you know, fast the whole of Lent. The interesting thing also is the way that sometimes uh, non-religious people do the same sort of thing. So the whole uh, sort of environmental movement uh, seems to be driven, you know, well, I'm really good, I recycle, or, uh, you know, I'm carbon neutral, or whatever it is. No, no, it seems to bad themselves, but it's the way that we sort of puff ourselves up and say, oh, I'm really good, I'm better than those other people down there. I, you know, I recycle far more of my stuff than they do, or I'm you know, far more carbon neutral than they are. Um, or other things, you know, I give blood, I give to charity. And we sort of puff ourselves up and say, oh, aren't I good? Surely I'm acceptable to God. And that is the old way that Jesus is contrasting with the new. And the new way is clearly Jesus and his way of forgiveness. How do I get right with God? Well, by being like Simon Peter, just across the page there. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, chapter 5 and verse 8. Simon Peter says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. He acknowledges his sin and joyfully accepts the forgiveness that Jesus offers. That is the new way, to come to Jesus. It's interesting, again, when, when he's talking about the fasting so we're jumping around a bit. Let's look at the fasting incident. So verse 33, chapter 5, verse 33. <clears throat> when they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered them, can you make the friends of a bridegroom fast while he is with them? He talks about himself being the bridegroom. It's a slightly 
odd illustration, but the bridegroom was one of the figures in the Old Testament they used to sort of talk about the Messiah. Here is the bridegroom coming, you know, he's coming to save. It's a time of good news. So why would you want to fast? I think most of you know that my daughter Ruth, our daughter Ruth, is getting married this summer. Interesting how many illustrations we get about that in the next few months. Anyway, now there's already been a much discussion about food and catering. How many people are going to come? How much is it going to cost? But what we are not expecting from anyone to say when they arrive, look, this is, this is a terrible day. This is a very, it's a very sad day. And I think I'm going to mourn and fast today because it's such a sad day. I think that would be bizarre. Yeah? I think it would be cheap, but sorry, it's the way I think. Um, it would be bizarre. Uh, so for people to respond to the coming of Jesus as the bridegroom and his amazing news with sort of mourning and fasting, Jesus says that is equally ridiculous. So you can see the two ways. Jesus is saying this is the old way. It's this distortion of Old Testament. Look, God, I fast a hundred times more than you asked me to. You know, I, I worked out the 39 things I shouldn't do on the Sabbath, and I don't do any of them. And I say, we, we do that in all sorts of ways. You know, I take mass every day. I fast for the whole of Lent, whatever, it's like, you know, whatever it is. That's the old way. Look, God, aren't I great? You must accept me. <clears throat> or there's the other way, which is here is Jesus coming to offer us forgiveness of sins. Here's Jesus saying, look, you are a sinner. You're a rebel against God. You push him away. You break his rules. But Jesus comes to forgive us. And it's just worth us just thinking, how, am I absolutely clear? I know most of the children are clear, but it's so important that we get that right. The old way, because that's often the way of the world. God, you must accept me because of the things I do. And the way of Jesus, which is Jesus comes to bring us forgiveness and eternal life for the wrong things that we have done. If you still feel a bit confused by that, please do come and talk to me or come and talk to Philippe about that later. A final kids question. What is Jesus' way to God? What is Jesus' way to God? But Jesus keeps going. He's going to make another couple of points about this. The old and the new don't mix. Uh, He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will uh, have torn the new garment and the patch and the old will not match the old. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new one will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. You can't put the, you know, the golden patch on the shirt. You can't put the new wine into the old wineskins. They just don't go together. Either they're going to go that old way of thinking you can make yourself right with God by what you do, or else you're going to acknowledge, look, I'm fundamentally a sick sinner, God, and I please can I have your forgiveness? And wonderfully, of course, there is that forgiveness. But Jesus says you can't sort of mix them. You can't think, well, I've sort of accepted Jesus, but I'm still relying on my ritual and my, and my practices and my, you know, whatever it is that I'm doing, and a few good works as well, just to sort of bolster my salvation. It just doesn't work like that. They don't mix. They don't go together. And again, at that point, I think it's worth looking at our own hearts. Because I think, as churchgoers, there can be a danger that after a while, maybe our thinking shifts. We began think, yeah, we began our Christian life thinking, yes, it's about Jesus, it's about forgiveness, but I've been coming to church a long time. I've done lots of good things. 
maybe God's just beginning to get a bit pleased with me because of the things I've done. It's good to keep having a confession at church. It's good to acknowledge when we have the Lord's Supper how unworthy we are. It's good to, when we're praying to God ourselves, to confess our sins and ask for his forgiveness. I think maybe that's what happens to the religious people. Maybe uh, they began. They started well. They knew it was about God's grace. But after a while, they just began to just turn and begin to think, hmm, maybe I'm good enough for God. Maybe I do all these things. Let me just fast another two or three times to show how impressive I am. Well, let's pray that God would help us indeed to understand that forgiveness. And then the final point that Jesus makes is the old won't accept the new. Verse 39, and no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. So the people who are doing the religious stuff don't like it when Jesus comes. They don't mix and they don't like it. Those steeped in that old way of self-righteousness and religious rule-keeping and rituals will find it very hard to change. Because at heart, this old way is a you know, it's based on pride and based on human achievement and based on what I do. And to change and become like Peter, who says, God, have mercy on me. You know, God, you know, God, I'm a terrible, sinful man. That takes a massive change of perspective. That's why these people hate Jesus. Because you've got to go from a position where you feel very pleased about yourself to coming to a position where you actually acknowledge that you are a sick sinner and that we need God's forgiveness. And lots of people find that very, very hard. It goes against everything. I think naturally it's impossible. Only by God's spirit, I think, can we do it. Well, that's our massive implications for us, doesn't it? We've got to keep looking at our own hearts. Are we going that old way? Are we drifting back towards that old way? Do we think that it's about religious rituals, maybe like fasting, or what we do on Sundays, or I say we can have modern equivalents like you know, recycling or giving to charity or giving blood? Do you ever catch yourself being so smug about something good you've done? I know it's a great danger. Uh, we just need to be careful that doesn't sort of become the dominant way of thinking. You know, it's good in our times of personal prayer to spend time confessing our sins and acknowledging them before God. And this is, I think, a second application for our evangelism in Wanstead. Wanstead is, I think, a very religious place. It's a very churchy place. Sadly, I think there are many people who do think like the Pharisees. They think that by their good deeds. I'm having a, friend, a conversation with a friend of mine. He's a church guy. I play a bit of cricket with him. And that was basically what he was saying. We, had this, we were basically having a discussion about these two ways. And he really didn't like Jesus because he liked the good way. He thought he was good enough. And we just got to be careful when we try and reach these people. I think sometimes I think, oh, they go to church. They're almost there. You know, if I'm just there, they're almost sort of target people who go to church because surely they're going to be closer. But actually, the Bible wants us maybe actually further away because of their pride. Again, you're there by the grace of God, go we. We've got to remember that. This passage warns that maybe the people who go to church are actually the hardest people to reach because they're so wound up in there, well, it's about me and what I've done and isn't God pleased with me, that for them to change from there to go to Jesus may be a massive change. I'm not saying, therefore, we shouldn't try and reach churchy people, don't get me wrong, but it's just we need to be aware that as we do that, that, is, that, that they're not going to be you know, easier people to convert necessarily because they may well have what Jesus says here. The old, the religious ritual, the rule-keeping, the anti-good God, 
is better. They like it rather than having to humble ourselves and say, yeah, no, you're right. Jesus, I am a sinner. I'm a sick sinner who needs your forgiveness. I find this passage very, very sobering. Here is the great Jesus. He's come. It's been so exciting. He's come to bring good news. We've seen him heal people. We've seen him uh, raise people from the dead. So we've seen him, uh, he'll raise people from the dead later. You know, he's healed people. He's driving out demons. He's forgiven sins. He's brought good news. And yet here people hate him. They're furious with him. Because they proudly think that by keeping their rules and rituals, God will be pleased with them and accept them. And sadly, as I said, we've seen that way of thinking just continues to this day. Well, I've put a discussion question to look at over coffee. Where have you come across the old way? And then challenge our own hearts. When did you see it in your own heart as well? Let's pray that God would indeed help us to understand and to keep going the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, Jesus' teaching. And in some ways this teaching, Father, is very painful because, Father, we see what our own hearts are like, that we can become proud. Uh, We can make up religious rules that we keep and then we sort of look at you and think, hey, God, aren't you pleased with us because we keep these rules? Father, please help us to see, as Simon Peter saw, as Levi knew, that we are sick sinners, that we keep pushing you away, we keep breaking your rules, and the only way to come to you is through this glorious Son of yours, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross. We praise you and we thank you so much for that. And Father, we pray as we take the gospel out to one, so we pray that you would pour out your grace. Father, there are many people who go to church week by week in Wanstead and sadly think it is all about what they do Heavenly Father, we pray in your grace and your mercy, you might open eyes for them to see that it is through the Lord Jesus Christ and through his death for us that we can be forgiven. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.